Section 13 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 4 Luther by the Reverend T. M. Lindsay. Part 1 the reformation of the sixteenth century had its birth and growth in a union of spiritual and secular forces such as the world has seldom seen at any other period of its history on the secular side the times were full of new movements intellectual and moral political social and economic and spiritual forces were everywhere at work which aimed at making religion the birthright and possession of the common man. Whether king, noble, burgher, artisan, or peasant, as well as of the ecclesiastic, a possession which should directly promote a worthy life within the family and the state. These religious impulses had all a peculiar democratic element, and were able to impregnate with passion and for a time to fuse together the secular forces of the period. Hence their importance historically. If the main defect in the earlier histories of the Reformation has been to neglect the secular sides of the movement, it is possible that more recent historians have been too apt to ignore the religious element, which was a real power. It may be an exaggeration to say, as is sometimes done, that this religious side of the Reformation began in the inward religious growth of a single personality. The river comes from a thousand nameless rills, and not only from one selected fountainhead. Yet Luther was so prominent a figure that the impulses in his religious life may be taken as the type of forces which were at work over a wide area and the history of these forces may be fitly described in tracing the genesis and growth of his religious opinions from his early years to his struggle against indulgences. The real roots of the religious life of Luther must be sought for in the family and in the popular religious life of the times. What had Luther and Myconius, and hundreds of other boys of the peasant and burgher classes, been taught by their parents within the family? And what religious influences met them in high school and university? Fortunately, the writings of the leaders of the new religious movement abound in biographical details, and the recent labors of German historians enable us to form some idea of the discordant elements in the religious life at the close of the fifteenth century. The religion taught by parents to children in pious German families seems to have been simple, unaffected, and evangelical. Myconius relates how his father, a burgher, was accustomed to expound the Apostles' Creed to the boy, and to tell him that Jesus Christ was the Savior from all sins, that the one thing needed to obtain God's pardon for sins was to pray and to trust, and how he insisted above all that the forgiveness of God was a free gift, bestowed without fee by God on man for the sake of what Christ had done. 
little books suitable for family instruction were in circulation in which were printed the creed the lord's prayer the ten commandments and sometimes one or two psalms in the german tongue simple catechisms and other small books of devotion seem to have been in circulation which were full of very simple evangelical teaching it is probable that luther repeated a great deal of what was commonly taught to children in his own earliest years when in later days he himself wrote little books for the young traces of his simple family piety which insisted that all holiness came from trusting in the holy passion of christ and that nothing which the sinner could do for himself availed anything may be found all down the stream of medieval religious life in the most popular hymns and in the sermons of the great revival preachers the latter half of the fifteenth century saw the growth of a form of piety very different from that simple household religion a strange terror seemed to brood over the people the plague came periodically into the crowded and badly drained towns new diseases made their appearance and added to the prevailing fear the dread of a turkish invasion seemed to be prevalent mothers scared their children by naming the turks and in hundreds of german parishes the bells tolled in the village steeples calling the people to pray to god to deliver them from turkish raids this prevailing fear bred a strange restlessness crowds of pilgrims thronged the highways trudging from shrine to shrine hoping to get deliverance from fear and assurance of pardon for sins princes who could afford a sufficiently large armed guard visited the holy places in palestine and brought back relics which they stored in their private chapels the lesser nobility and the richer burghers made pilgrimages to rome especially during the jubilee years which became somewhat frequent in the later middle ages and secured indulgences by visiting and praying before the several shrines in the holy city for the common folk of germany in the last decades of the fifteenth century the favorite place of pilgrimage was compostela in spain and in the second degree einsiedeln in switzerland it was said that the bones of st james the brother of our lord had been brought from palestine to compostela and the shrine numbered its pilgrims by the hundred thousand a year so famous and frequented was this place of pilgrimage that a special one might almost say a professional class of pilgrims came into existence the jakobsbruder who were continually on the roads coming to or from compostela seeking to win pardon for themselves or others by their wandering devotion sometimes the desire to go on pilgrimage became almost an epidemic bands of children thronged the roads bareheaded and clad in nothing but their shirts women left their families and men deserted their work in vain preachers of morals like geiler von kaisersberg denounced the practice and said that on pilgrimages more sinners were created than sins pardoned the terror swayed men and they fled to shrines where they believed they could find forgiveness the pilgrimage songs make a small literature 
and pilgrim guidebooks like the Mirabilia Romae and De Wallfahrt und Strasse zu San Jakob appeared in many languages. This revival of religion had its special effect on men destined to a religious life. The secular clergy seemed to have been the least affected. Chronicles, whether of towns or families, bear witness to the degradation of morals among the parish priests and the superior clergy. The Benedictines and their dependent orders of monks do not appear to have shared largely in the religious movement. It was different, however, with the Dominicans, the Franciscans, and the mendicant Augustians. These begging friars reformed themselves strenuously, in the medieval sense of reformation. They went back to their old lives of mortifying the flesh, of devoting themselves to works of practical benevolence and of self-denying activity. As a consequence, they, and not the parish clergy, had become the trusted religious leaders of the people. Their chapels were thronged by the common folk, and the better-disposed nobles and burghers took them for their confessors and spiritual directors. It was in vain that the Roman Curia proclaimed, by its legates in Germany, the old doctrine that the benefits of religious acts do not depend upon the personal character of the administrators, that it published regulations binding all parishioners to confess at least once a year to their parish priests. The people, high and low, felt that bishops who rode to the diet, accompanied by their concubines, disguised in men's clothing, and parish priests who were tavern-keepers, or the most frequent customers at the village public-house, were not true spiritual guides. They turned for the consolations of religion to the poor-living, hard-working Franciscans and Augustinian Aramites, who listened to their confessions and spoke comfortingly to their souls, who taught the children and said masses without taking fees. The last decades of the fifteenth century were the time of a revival in the spiritual power and devotion of the mendicant orders. One result of the underlying fear which inspired this religious revival was the way in which the personality of Christ was constantly regarded in the common Christian thought of the time as it is revealed to us in autobiographies, in sermons, and in pictorial representations. The Saviour was concealed behind the judge, who was to come to punish the wicked. Luther tells us that when he was a boy in the parish church, his childish imagination was inflamed by the stained-glass picture of Jesus, not the Saviour, but the judge, of a fierce countenance, seated on a rainbow and carrying a flaming sword in his hand. This idea prevented pious people who held it from approaching Jesus as an intercessor. He himself needed to be interceded with on behalf of the poor sinners he was coming to judge. And this thought in turn gave to the adoration of the Virgin Mother a strength and intensity hitherto unknown in medieval religion. The doctrine of the Immaculate Conception had strenuous advocates— Men and women formed themselves into confraternities that they might beseech her intercession with the strength that numbers give, 
and these confraternities spread all over Germany. The intercessory powers of the Virgin Mother became a more and more important element in the popular religion, and little books of devotion were in circulation. The little gospel, the pearl of the passion, which related with many a comment the words of Christ on the cross to St. John and to the Virgin. Then the idea grew up that the Virgin herself had to be interceded with in order to become an intercessor, and her mother, St. Anne, became the object of a cult which may almost be called new. This cult of the Blessed Anna rapidly extended itself in ever-widening circles until there were few districts in Germany which had not their confraternities devoted to her service. Such was the prevailing enthusiastic popular religion of the last decades of the fifteenth century. The religion which met and surrounded a sensitive boy when he left his quiet home and entered the world. It had small connection, save in the one point of the increased reverence paid to the Virgin, with the theology of the schools, but it was the religious force among the people. Side by side with this flamboyant popular religion can be discerned another spiritual movement, so unlike it, so utterly divergent from it in character and in aim, that it is surprising to detect its presence within the same areas and at the same period, and that we need scarcely wonder that it has been so largely overlooked. Its great characteristic was that laymen began to take into their own hands matters which had hitherto been supposed to be the exclusive property of churchmen. We can discern the impulse setting in motion at the same time princes, burghers, and artisans, each class in its own way. The Great Council of Constance had pledged the Church to a large number of practical reforms, aiming at the reinvigoration of the various local ecclesiastical institutions. These pledges had never been fulfilled, and their non-fulfillment accounts for one side of the German opposition to Rome. During the last decades of the fifteenth century, some of the German princes assumed the right to see that within their lands proper discipline was exercised over the clergy, as well as over the laity. To give instances would need more space than this chapter affords. It is enough to say that the Jus Episcopale, which Luther claimed in later days for the civil power, had been exercised, and that for the good of the people, in the lands of Brandenburg and of Saxony, before the close of the fifteenth century. We have therefore this new thing, that the laity in power had begun to set quietly aside the immunities and privileges of the church, to this extent at least, that the civil authorities compelled the local ecclesiastical institutions within their dominions to live under the rule of reform laid down by an ecumenical council, and that they did this despite the remonstrances of the superior ecclesiastical authorities. The same assertion of the rights of laymen to do Christian work in their own way appears when the records of the boroughs are examined. The whole charitable system of the Middle Ages had been administered by the Church. All bequests for the relief of the poor had been placed in the hands of the clergy, 
and all donations for the relief of the poor were given to clerical managers. The burghers saw the charitable bequests of their forefathers grossly perverted from their original purposes, and it began to dawn upon them that, although the law of charity was part of the law of Christ, it did not necessarily follow that all charities must be under ecclesiastical administration. Hence, cases appear, and that more frequently as the years pass, where burghers leave their charitable bequests to be managed by the town council or other secular authority, and this particular portion of Christian work ceased to be the exclusive possession of the clergy. Another feature of the times was the growth of an immense number of novel religious associations, or confraternities. They were not, like the praying circles of the mystics, or of the Gottesfreunde, strictly non-clerical or anti-clerical. They had no objection to the protection of the church, but they had a distinctively lay character. Some of them were associations of artisans, and these were commonly called kalends, because it was one of their rules to meet once a month for divine service, usually in a chapel belonging to one of the mendicant orders. Others bore curious names, such as St. Ursula's Schifflein, and enforced a rule that all the members must pay a certain number of times a week. Pious people frequently belonged to a number of these associations. The members united for religious purposes, generally under the auspices of the church, but they were confraternities of laymen and women who had marked out for themselves their own course of religious duties, quite independently of the church and of its traditional ideals. Perhaps no greater contribution could be made to our knowledge of the quiet religious life at the close of the fifteenth century than to gather together in a monograph what can be known about these religious confraternities. Such was the religious atmosphere into which Luther was born and which he breathed from his earliest days. His mother taught him the simple evangelical hymns which had fed her own spiritual growth. His father had that sturdy common-sense piety which belonged to so many of the better-disposed nobles, burghers and artisans of the time, while the fear of Jesus the judge, who was coming to judge and punish the wicked, branded itself on his child's soul when he gazed up at the vengeful picture of our Lord. He was taught at home the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, words of Jesus from the Gospels, the Creed, such simple hymns as Christ ist erstanden, in Kindlein so lublich, and Nun bitten wir den Heiligen Geist, all that went to make what he long afterwards called the faith of the children. His father's strong dislike to monks and friars, the Hussite propaganda, which, in spite of all attempts at repression, had penetrated the hearts and Thuringia, the Mansfeld police regulations, with other evidence from the local chronicles, show how much the lay religion had made its way among the people. The popular revival displayed itself in the great processions and pilgrimages made to holy places in his neighborhood, to Kufhäuser, where there was a miraculous wooden cross, 
to the Bruno Chapel of Cranfort, to the Old Chapel at Welfesholz, to the Cloister Church at Wimmelberg. Martin Luther was born on November 10, 1483, at Eisleben, and spent his childhood in Mansfeld. His father, Hans, was a miner in the Mansfeld district, where the policy of the counts of Mansfeld to build and let out on hire small smelting furnaces enabled thrifty and skilled workmen to rise in the world. The boy grew up amidst the toilsome, grimy, often coarse surroundings of the German peasant life, protected from much that was evil by the wise severity of his parents, but sharing in its hardness, its superstitions, and its simple political and ecclesiastical ideas. As that the emperor was God's ruler on the earth, who would protect poor people from the Turk. That the church was the pope's house, in which the bishop of Rome was the house father and that obedience and reverence were due to the lords of the soil. He went to the village school in Mansfeld, and endured the cruelties of a merciless pedagogue. He was sent later to a school at Magdeburg, and then to St. George's High School at Eisenach. In these boyish days he was a poor student, i.e., one who got his education and lodging free was obliged to sing in the church choir, and was permitted to sing in the streets, begging for bread. His later writings abound in references to these early school days and to his own quiet thoughts, and they make it plain that the religion of fear was laying hold on him and driving out the earlier simple family faith. Two pictures branded themselves on his childish mind at Magdeburg, he saw a young prince of Annalt, who had forsaken rank and inheritance, and, to save his soul, had become a barefooted friar, carrying the huge begging sack, and worn to skin and bone by his scourgings and fastings and prayers. The other was an altarpiece in a church, the picture of a ship, in which was no layman, not even a king or a prince. In it were the Pope with his cardinals and bishops, and the Holy Ghost hovered over them directing their course, while priests and monks managed the oars and the sails, and thus they went sailing heavenwards. The laymen were swimming in the water beside the ship. Some were drowning. Others were holding on by ropes which the monks and priests cast out to them to aid them. No layman was in the ship, and no ecclesiastic was in the water. The picture haunted him for years. At Eisenach he had some glimpses of the old simple family life, this time accompanied by a new refinement, in the house of the lady whom most biographers identify with Frau Kotte. But the religious atmosphere of the town which the boy inhaled and enjoyed was new. The town was under the spell of St. Elizabeth, the pious Landgravine, who had given up family life, children, and all earthly comforts to earn a medieval saintship. Her good deeds were blazoned on the windows of the church in which Luther sang as choir boy, and he had long conversations with some of the monks who belonged to her foundations. 
the novel surroundings tended to lead him far from the homely piety of his parents and from the more cultured family religion of his new friends and he confesses that it was with incredulous surprise that he heard frau cotta say that there was nothing on earth more lovely than the love of husband and wife when it is in the fear of the lord he had surrendered himself to that revival of crude medieval religion which was based on fear and which found an outlet in fastings scourgings pilgrimages saint worship and in general in the thought that salvation demanded the abandonment of family friends and the activities and enjoyments of life in the world after three happy years at eisenach luther was sent to erfurt and entered his name on the matriculation roll in letters which can still be read martinus luther ex mansfeld hans luther had been prospering he was able to pay for his son's college expenses luther was no longer a poor student but was able to give undivided attention to his studies the father meant the son to become a trained lawyer and the lad of seventeen seems to have accepted without question the career marked out for him the university of erfurt was in luther's days the most famous in germany it had been founded in thirteen ninety two by the burghers and academic and burgher life mingled there as nowhere else the graduation days were town holidays and the graduation ceremonies always included a procession of the university authorities the guilds and the town officials with all the attendant medieval pomp and concluded with a torchlight march at night but if the university was strictly allied to the town it was as strongly united to the church it had been enriched with numerous papal privileges its chancellor was the archbishop of mainz many of its theological professors held ecclesiastical prebends and others were monks of different orders and notably of the augustinian eremites the whole teaching staff went solemnly to hear mass at the beginning of every term each faculty was under the protection of a patron saint saint george presiding over the faculty of philosophy the professors had to swear to teach nothing opposed to the doctrine of the roman church and care was taken to prevent the beginnings and spread of heretical opinions the university teaching was medieval in all essentials but represented the new as cologne championed the old scholasticism gabriel beale the disciple of william of ockham had been one of the teachers humanism of the german type which was very different from the italian had found an entrance as early as fourteen sixty in the persons of peter luther and jacob publicius and in the following years there was a good deal of intercourse between erfurt scholars and italian humanists maternus pistoris was lecturing on the latin classics in fourteen ninety four and had for his colleague nicholas marschalk who was the first to establish a printing press in germany for greek books they had speedily gathered round them a band of enthusiastic scholars johannes jaeger of drontheim crotus rubianus 
Henry and Peter Eberach, George Borkart of Spelt, Spalatinus, John Lange, and others known afterwards in the earlier stages of the Reformation movement. Conrad Muti, Mutzianus Rufus, who had studied in Italy, was one of the leaders. Eoban of Hesse, Helios Eobanus Hessus, perhaps the most gifted of them all, joined the circle in 1494. These humanists did not attack openly the older course of study at Erfurt. They wrote complimentary Latin poems in praise of their older colleagues. They formed a select circle who were called the poets. They affected to correspond with each other after the manner of the ancients. In private, Mutzianus and Crotus seem to have delighted to reveal their eclectic theosophy to a band of half-terrified, half-admiring youths. To say that there was but one god who had the various names of Jupiter, Mars, Hercules, Jesus, and one goddess who was called Juno, Diana, or Mary, as the worshippers chose, but these things were not supposed to be for the public ear. The University of Erfurt, in the beginning of the sixteenth century, was the recognized meeting place of the two opposing tendencies of scholasticism and humanism. And it was also, perhaps in a higher degree than any other university, a place where the student was exposed to many other diverse influences. The system of biblical exegesis, first stimulated by Nicholas de Lira, which cannot be classed under scholasticism or humanism, had found a succession of able teachers in Erfurt. The strong anti-clerical teaching of Jacob of Uteborg and of John Wessel, who had taught in Erfurt for fifteen years, had left its mark on the university, and was not forgotten. Low mutterings of the Hussite propaganda itself, Luther tells us, could be heard from time to time, urging a strange Christian socialism which was at the same time thoroughly anti-clerical. Then over against all this, opportunities were occasionally given, at the visits of papal legates, for seeing the magnificence and might of the Roman Church and of the Pope, its head. In 1502, and again in 1504, during Luther's student days, Cardinal Raymond, sent to proclaim in Germany new and unheard-of indulgences, visited the university town. The civic dignitaries, the rector magnificus, with the whole university, all the clergy, the monks and the schoolchildren, accompanied by crowds of the townsfolk, went out in procession to meet him and escort him with due ceremony into the city. Add to this the gross dissipation existing among many of the student sets and the whisperings of foul living on the part of many of the higher clergy in the town, and some idea can be formed of the sea of trouble, doubt, questioning, and anxiety into which a bright, sensitive, imaginative, and piously disposed lad of seventeen was thrown when he had begun his student life in Erfurt. End of section 13 Read by The Story Girl